Acts chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 6 through 11. Please do pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask God that you would speak now to your children. God, remind us of who you are. Remind us of who we are in you and of the hope that we have. Remind us of the power that we have to do your will in this world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I occasionally get the question or questions about doing sermon prep. Uh, people who have never maybe prepared a, a talk or some type of message before, are like, how do you, like, where do you start and how do you structure things and how much time do you spend on it, right? The joke is that pastors only work 30 minutes uh, a week. I think you all know that's not true, uh, but you know, there's a lot of questions about that whole process. And I've shared before that I never, um, well, I said, I said I would never go to seminary, I would never be a pastor, and I would never be a church planter. My advice to all of you is don't ever tell God what you are never going to do. That's my strong advice. <laughs> But back in the summer of 2009, we were back on uh, furlough from China. We'd been there for about two and a half years, and we were in Fort Collins, Colorado. We were serving with crew, and uh, I took two classes that summer. One was biblical interpretation, and one was biblical communication. So basically teaching crew staff, how do you, how do you study the Bible, interpret it? How do you kind of put things together, make your outline? And then the second part was communicating it. How do you give a talk? And I went into that terrified. I was not, uh, I didn't love public speaking at all. I remember speech class in high school, speech class in college, just getting up totally terrified. I was in a room full of people who I had spent the whole summer with by the time we got to that point. I was still terrified just to get up and give this short talk. But something happened that summer. We read a book by a guy named Brian Chappell called Christ-Centered Preaching. And as I read that book, I realized, okay, preachers are just normal people, right? It's not like someone is just this, you know, not that all preachers are totally gifted and there's only this select few people who can do it. Most people who are like me are not just naturally gifted at it. And we learn some things along the way and we realize, oh yeah, like we can do this. And as I read that book, I realized like 
preaching is it's both an art and a science. There's, you know, you need some of the, the communication skills, but there's, there's a science behind it. There's a process behind it. And to me, that was just very liberating because even at that time, I was still saying, I don't want to be a pastor and I don't want to preach regularly, but I kind of felt like, okay, like I could do this. And if any of you are, you know, good at something, you, you got to that point probably by a similar process, right? You, maybe you read a book or you took some classes and you realized like, oh yeah, like I can actually do this thing. Well, that book, it, and the reason I'm sharing all of this is, is Brian Chappell's book is very popular in our circles when we talk about Christ-centered preaching. We call it the chapel model. And there's one thing that he emphasizes that I don't know that anybody else really talks about in the same exact way. And he calls it the fallen condition focus. Basically, the fallen condition focus is from the, both the, the text, from God speaking through the human author, and then through the pastor trying to communicate to the congregation, what is the thing in this passage that we all need to hear, right, that shows us the results of the fall, that shows us why we need a savior. And there's, you know, usually it's quite obvious in a text that there is a fallen condition focus. Last week, I was in the office with James, and I said, you'd be pretty hard-pressed in Acts 1 through 5 to find an obvious fallen condition focus in this passage. Luke's just giving this recounting of, of what Jesus has done. Um, you know, maybe the one thing when they're told to wait and maybe they're impatient, you know, you could have drawn that out of there, but there's nothing obvious that, oh, here's this sin that the disciples are dealing with. So I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to force this. I didn't really focus on that, but this week it's majorly obvious. You should know that this is, again, as we're communicating to you, as we're preaching, this is the, the thing that we are seeking to do to say, where is the fallen condition focus in this passage? Where is the sin that needs to be confronted by God through his spirit? And this is not just a one-way street. We don't get up here and say, you all need to get your act together, right? As I'm going through the text, as I'm preparing throughout the week, as I'm praying, I need to be confronted by these things, right? I need to realize how God is at work in my own life and how I need to repent of things. As we come week in and week out, and as we confess our sins, again, those of us leading worship up here aren't saying, okay, people, now it's time for you all to confess your sins, right? We come, we confess our sins individually and corporately, and we are just as much a part of that. We need to recognize that not all is right with the world. We need to recognize that we need a Savior. And I think this is something that we really must realize as we go through the book of Acts. And this is kind of why I'm hammering this point home. There's a tendency to glamorize the early church. You might have heard people say something like, if we could just get back to the book of Acts, right? If we could just get back to the early church, maybe during COVID when there was a lot of crazy stuff going on and people were leaving their churches and people were disgruntled and saying, we're going to start, we're going to start our own house church. I guarantee you those people were saying, we want to get back to the book of Acts. We want to do things like they did in the book of Acts. And I want to kind of snarkily say, really? Have you read Paul's letters to the Corinthians? Do you remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, right? It's not this glamorous story. It's not a bunch of people who, oh, they were filled with the Spirit and there was no issues and there was just harmony. No, there was sin all over the place. And we have to see that 
in the text every week as we go through the book of Acts. We have to be able to put ourselves in the place of the disciples and of those in the early church. We have to realize that we're sinners just in the same way that they were. And we have to let God confront us. If you've been around here long and you didn't know this whole fallen condition focus was a thing, you're probably not surprised, right? I mean, we're always talking about our sin and how the Lord needs to confront us in our sin. But I want you to really think about that specifically as we go through Acts. Think about what does this say to our need for a savior? What does this say about life in a fallen world? I mean, we're going to be getting into a whole bunch of things on you know, Paul's missionary journeys and the, the sermons that are preached and the opposition. The book of Acts is not this like flowery story, right? It's real life filled with a ton of sinful people. And those who are closest to God who have been called by God are also sinners. So we need to remember that. I think we do face many of the same temptations. So let's ask God in this process to show us our sin, to show us our need for the Savior. So we will be looking this morning at the events surrounding Jesus' ascension in verses 6 through 11. The context, again, if you weren't here last week, Luke basically explains how Acts is a sequel to his gospel account. He talks about the life and ministry of Jesus, the things that he began to do and teach, verse 1, until the day that he was taken up, his ascension. Uh, Verses 4 and 5 talk about them waiting for the promise of the Spirit, which is would fall 10 days later on the day of Pentecost. Again, we prayed through the Lord's Prayer. We saw those important lines that it ends with, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Again, that's our sermon title this morning. And I do want to ask three questions as we look at this text. Where is the kingdom? Where is the power? And where is the glory? If you're taking notes, I am going to add a little kind of a little associated phrase with each of these questions. The first one is that we're going to see the disciples' faulty request. We're going to see a faulty request by the disciples in verses 6 and 7 as we try to answer the question, where is the kingdom? Look at this question in verse 6 from the disciples. They had come together. They asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. Jesus had just spent 40 days in his resurrected body doing what? Look back at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now this feels a little bit like what happened at the end of Luke. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. He meets two disciples who don't recognize him. He asks them what they are talking about. They had been discussing the events that had happened in Jerusalem with Jesus' uh, death and his burial. And they, they explain that to him. And then they say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You see the similarity there with the question here in verse 6? They had hoped that Jesus was a political ruler who would come and set them free from the Roman rule, right? The question here in verse 6, 
Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, carries those same connotations and those same hopes. Do you know how Jesus responded to the disciples on the Emmaus Road? Oh, foolish ones, and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Luke doesn't record this, and I'm not trying to speculate and add to Scripture here. But couldn't Jesus have said here, after their question, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the risen Messiah has spoken to you for the last 40 days. 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. And then they ask, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So what exactly is wrong with their question? John Calvin said, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. Calvin did have a sense of humor, folks. John Stott unpacks Calvin's pithy comment and says, the verb restore shows that they were expecting a political and territorial kingdom. The noun Israel, that they were expecting a national kingdom. And the adverbial clause at this time, that they were expecting its immediate establishment. Now, I said our question for this section is, where is the kingdom? That's a good kind of overarching question. I think we could also ask that, that question, where is the kingdom? It fits with where is the power and where is the glory. Uh, but Stott's explanation of the disciples' faulty request gets at a few similar questions. The disciples were seeking restoration of a political and territorial kingdom. So we could ask the question, what is the kingdom? Is it this restoration of this political kingdom? Is it territorial? Their question about the kingdom being restored to Israel showed their national and ethnic focus. The question we could ask is, who is the kingdom for? Or who will be in the kingdom of God? And finally, the at this time part of their question, we could ask, when is the kingdom of God coming? The book of Acts will show us that the boundaries of the kingdom and the authority of the kingdom are no longer defined historically or geographically or ethnically. This is a huge deal in the book of Acts. The disciples' faulty request reveals their misguided priorities and their misunderstanding about what the kingdom of God is, about who is part of it, and about the timing of its arrival. But the good thing is that we don't ever struggle with these types of things today, right? After 2,000 years, we finally figured it out. The people who say they want to get back to the book of Acts, they want to do that because they've figured it out. And we're all like that. We don't politicize or territorialize God's kingdom, right? We don't try to define who's in and who's out. We don't say, like, oh, those, you know, are those people over there. We don't get overly concerned with how or when Christ will return and establish his kingdom. Again, I ask those questions a little bit snarkily because this is part of our fallen condition focus. We do have these mistaken notions. And it does play out in our lives, it plays out in our churches, 
It plays out in our witness in this world. You can probably all think about examples of these things in our own lives. And I don't need to give you a whole bunch. You can maybe go home and, and think about those yourself. But praise God that we are not just left to ourselves to try to figure these things out. Jesus didn't appear to the disciples on the road to Emmaus just to shame them and to tell them how stupid they were. He did call them foolish and slow of heart to believe, but he wasn't wrong. They were being foolish. And we often are too. Again, he didn't leave them in the dark, though. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And then he said that he would send the promise of the Father upon them. This is at the end of Luke 24. Then Luke opens Acts, which we saw last week, with the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 4 and 5. Told them to wait for the promise of the Father. Said that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's what we see here in verses 7 and 8 in Jesus' response to their faulty request. Immediately following their question, Jesus first addresses the disciples at this time, part of, the of their question, by reminding them, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. This is consistent with what Jesus has already taught his disciples prior to his death and resurrection in Matthew 24, which we call the Olivet Discourse. It's primarily about the signs of the end of the age before his return. He told them concerning that day, the day of his return, that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. The father who has fixed that day by his own authority. In other words, for the disciples then, and for us today, this applies as disciples of Jesus Christ. We don't need to concern ourselves with what the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's for him alone to know and not for us. Again, this wasn't just for the 11 apostles present with Jesus at his ascension. Paul wrote this to believers in Thessalonica. At 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2, he said, Now concerning the times and the seasons, same word that Jesus uses here in Acts 1-7, concerning the time and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's really interesting here. Paul says, you are fully aware that you don't need to know. You know that you don't need to know. That's interesting. You know enough. You know that Jesus has promised that he's coming. And then he, Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to be sober-minded, to continue to encourage one another and to build one another up. That's the ongoing work of the church. But it's not just this insular, inward-facing emphasis, which is how it can sometimes be understood. Encourage one another, build one another, one another up. Jesus' response to the disciples' faulty question really drives this point home, especially in verse 8. Here, Jesus is going to answer their faulty request with a faithful promise. So Jesus gives a faithful promise addressing the question, where is the power? Acts 1.8 is probably one of the most memorized verses in the whole Bible. 
If you've read any books on evangelism, uh, if you've taken any courses on missions, no doubt this verse has been a huge emphasis. It's at the heart of the missionary endeavor, and for good reason. Jesus commissions his followers to be his witnesses in the world. There are several noteworthy things in this verse. First are a couple of the words that he uses. The word power, says you will receive power, is the Greek word dynamis. Doesn't take a rocket scientist or a explosive scientist, whatever, to figure out, Zach, you probably, what's the name of the, the engineer who blows stuff up? I don't know. Is there a name? Doesn't take that smart person. Is there a word? Some? There you go. It doesn't take a pyrotechnician to figure out what the Greek word dynamis means, all right? Wow, I drug that on way too long. Power, dynamite is where we get the word dynamite. You will receive power. This isn't just like some little like, you know, you put a battery in and five minutes later it's dead. This is serious power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is a power that is able to produce change that is beyond what we can do with our own strength. Have you ever tried to change another person's heart? How did that go? <laughs> Have you ever tried to change your own heart on your own power? How did that go? I quoted last week from Patrick Schreiner in his book, The Mission of the Triune God, which again, I would recommend. It's a great book talks about the difference between the world's standards of power to influence behavior and the spirit's power. The difference is that the world's power is usually employed for selfish reasons. And let's be honest, we've all either been on the giving or the receiving end, maybe both, of this kind of abuse of worldly power. But that's not how the spirit works. Listen to what Schreiner says. The spirit's power allows people to testify to the exalted king. The Spirit's power makes people whole by making them others-centered. The Spirit's power compels people to welcome people they usually would not share with those, welcome people they usually would not, and share with those in need. The Spirit's power pushed people into persecution. Nobody's seeking persecution. You'd be crazy to go out seeking persecution for fun, right? The power of the Spirit pushes us out and enables us to endure it. And he says, in Acts, people are constantly catching up with the Spirit's work as he leads them. Now, I argued last week that the disciples are not the heroes in the book of Acts. The triune God is. God is the hero. God gets the glory. It's his kingdom. It's his power. It's his glory. It's not ours. It's not Peter's. It's not Paul's. It's not Barnabas's. It's not Augustine's or Calvin's. It's not ours. It's God's. He is accomplishing his purposes in the world by sending out spirit-filled witnesses to the ends of the earth. And Acts 1.8 also serves as a bit of a geographical table of contents for the entire book. If you've read any introduction to Acts, this is always pointed out. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Chapters 1 through 7 are focused on Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 are focused on Judea and Samaria. And chapters 13 to 28 are focused on the ends of the earth. It's very clear 
This isn't one of those like, you know, talk about and like in Hebrew, you're trying to find this chiasm, like how do all these things matter? This is like crystal clear, right? This is how Acts is laid out. As we're going through it, we're going to be seeing those things. There is this very much geographical emphasis of the gospel starting in Jerusalem and then going out to the ends of the earth. And Jesus lays it out right from the beginning here in chapter one, verse eight. This would have been a major paradigm shift for the Jews and the way they thought about the kingdom of God and their influence on the surrounding nations. In the Old Testament, there is a centripetal emphasis, meaning that things move toward the center, from the outside moving in, the, the being forced inward. Jerusalem was viewed as the center. The temple was where God dwelt among his people, and the desire was that the nations would come, that the nations would, would flock to Mount Zion, that people would be drawn to God. And that is not, that wasn't a bad thing. That wasn't a, a wrong thing. We talk about this in our own worship and our own witnessing today. The emphasis of come and see, right? We want people to come and join us. We want people to, to come and worship with us. That we want God, we want them to come so God can speak to them through his word. It'd be craziness to say like, I'm going to go evangelize my neighbor and hope he believes in Jesus and then just let him be on his own. Like, no, you need to get plugged into a church, right? You need to be with God's people. There is this centripetal force. You need to come in and be connected. But it can't end there. We can't be content just saying, let's just fill up this room and then it's all good. Acts 1.8 and following are centrifugal. It's moving away from the center, moving out from there. This is the go and tell and the be my witnesses element of the gospel. This outward motion should be something that Christians are desiring to be a part of. It doesn't mean that you have to be the one who packs up your bags and sells all your things and moves overseas. But you have to desire to be a part of coming together and then us going out from here, right? That's what's modeled right here in early on in the book of Acts, and we'll see it throughout the whole book. Interestingly, I th interestingly, there's a common misconception that I think we often get hung up on. We think that we are where we are is Jerusalem and that we have to go out from our Jerusalem to some faraway place. But actually, we are the ends of the earth. Jerusalem is still Jerusalem, right? The gospel went out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So we don't say like, oh, America is is our Jerusalem, and we need to go out. We are the ends of the earth, and we should recognize that and praise God for that and continue to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? The ends of the earth is everywhere now. We're not some central hub. I mean, praise God for the missionary movement that has happened in the last couple centuries. Praise God for all the people that have been sent out. But we're looking at it incorrectly if we're saying America is the hub of, of world missions and we're sending everybody out to the ends of the earth. No, we are the ends of the earth. We've been reached with the gospel, praise God. And we take the gospel continually. It's just the baton is just passing, right? It's not like the, the start of the race all of a sudden became America. That's ridiculous. And don't get me started about all of that. But we need to be reminded of that. And that, that's, that just ties exactly in with what Jesus is saying, right? The center of Christianity is not America. It's not even the West, right? Okay, done with that. Um, okay, where was I? 
Yeah. So that's what we're called to do. We're called to carry on that witness, to keep it going. And that's what we see here in verses 9 and 10, that the mission must carry on. So we see that we're given a future guarantee. God, Christ gives us a future guarantee to help us answer the question, where is the glory? We've seen where the kingdom is and where the power is. So final question, where is the glory? And the simple answer is the glory is Christ's. He is the risen and ascended and reigning king. The glory is his. After Jesus ascends into heaven, we see here in verses 9 and 10, two, uh, 9 through 11, uh, two angels appear to the apostles and they ask them why they are standing there looking into heaven. And then they tell them that Jesus is coming back again. The point is, don't just stand there. Don't just stand there. Do something. Get to work. And this isn't in a guilt-tripping kind of way. This isn't like, hey, you're not doing enough. Do more. It's, don't stand there. Do something. Do something for Jesus. Again, John Stott is helpful here. He says, their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. It is the same for us. Curiosity about heaven and its occupants, speculation about prophecy and its fulfillment, an obsession with times and seasons, these are aberrations which distract us from our God-given mission. Christ will come personally, visibly, gloriously. Of that we have been assured. Other details can wait. Meanwhile, we have work to do in the power of the Spirit. We have work to do in the power of the Spirit. This addresses the second element of the fallen condition focus in this passage, doesn't it? It's easy for us as individuals and as a church to get distracted from our God-given mission. To stand around looking into heaven. To let the cares of the world distract us or the fear of failure distract us. Made an interesting connection as I was reading through um, Shriner's book, The Mission of the Triune God. And then as we dug into the first chapter of the book, How People Change, for those of you who are in that class, there was that little diagram in the first chapter. Uh, Paul Tripp's talking about the gospel gap. He says how we're really good at understanding our past forgiveness. We're really good at looking backwards. We're really good at looking to our future hope. But we don't do a very good job at living in the here and now, right? We have this gospel gap. We know what's what's true of what's happened. We know what's true about what's going to happen. But we don't do well at living in the present. And Shriner makes a connection with we're pretty good at focusing on Jesus' resurrection, right? He rose from the dead. We celebrate that on Easter Sunday. We get all caught up in, in focusing on that, the fact that he's coming back, all kinds of speculation, all kinds of things but we don't really do a good job talking about the reality of the ascension that Jesus rose that, or that Jesus ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the father where he is right now interceding for us on his throne as the risen and reigning King. We don't think about that. That's what I think there's a connection between that and that gospel gap that trip is talking about. The way that we live in the here and now is not just looking back to the resurrection, which we should, we should do, 
Almost every time I administer the Lord's Supper, I talk about looking back and looking forward. We need to do those things. But I think I've maybe myself failed to realize the power and the reality of the here and now. Ephesians 2 talks about we're, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. His ascension leads to our being seated with him. And I, I think that it blows our minds too much that like, how can that be a reality? How can I be spiritually seated in heaven with Jesus right now? But you are, if you are in Christ. And that's because of his ascension. He's reigning, he's seated, and you're seated with him spiritually. So let's, as we think about that here and now element, let's not lose sight of the fact that our ascended reigning king is doing exactly that. He's reigning. So the ascension is is massively important, and I think it does often get overlooked. The other thing I want to encourage us encourage us is to not be overly concerned about the how and the when of the end times. Young people, I especially want to encourage you. I think those of us who have been around a little bit longer, maybe are a little bit more hardened or just a little more cynical. I think the whole like, when's it going to happen? How's it? We believe, we still believe it's going to happen, right? But we're not as like, what's the details? And we're not as like anxious about it. We've been around a little longer and, and I don't, you know, maybe somebody can unpack that psychologically. I don't, totally understand why all that is but when we're younger i think it's easy to kind of get caught up in and especially like what about 20-ish years ago when i was in college and all the end times book or the left behind series books were coming out there was a little bit more of a maybe a, a rage about it then but there's still that temptation i think to you see something in the news and oh like here's this event is, is jesus coming back tomorrow and again it's not like totally wrong to be interested in those things but i think we need to be careful I mean, looking at what Jesus said here to the disciples and looking at what the angels said to the disciples, right? We need to be careful not to put all our eggs in that basket. Can't get ahead of what the Spirit's doing. We can't get ahead of, of God's timing. He knows. We need to be content in the here and now to, to live faithful lives, to go out and to, to preach the gospel. And if people have questions about, you know, what's, what's going on in the world and how is it all going to end? Like, for sure, speak to those things, but don't make that the main focus. Don't make that the main thing that, that we're getting all, all riled up about. For all of us then, don't miss the key here in this passage. We have work to do in the power of the Spirit. Christ lives and reigns in glory. He is seated at his Father's right hand where he is interceding for us, as I've already mentioned, as king who has conquered all his and our enemies. He has sent his spirit to empower his church to witness for him to the ends of the earth. This is literally an earth-shattering mission. It's how the kingdom of God comes in power to bring glory to our triune God. It is the mission that we will see unfold over these next 27 and a half chapters in Acts. It's going to be a wild ride and we get a front row seat not just uh, as observers of something that happened a long time ago but we are participants praise god for his is the kingdom and the power and the glory let us pray father we need <laughs> the book of Acts. 
we need to be reminded of our own propensity to ask the question, when will the kingdom be restored to Israel? Whatever form that takes in our lives. God, we are tempted to ask a similar question. We need to be reminded by you graciously that it's not for us to know. It's not for us to know the times or the seasons. What is for us is to be filled with your spirit, to be reconciled to you through the death, burial, and resurrection, through the blood of your son, by the power of your spirit, to be gathered together as a church, to be faithful to the scriptures, to come together to worship you, and then God, to be sent out from here as a people who call others to be reconciled to you. Lord, this this whole endeavor is a miracle of your grace. It's not something that a bunch of ragtag followers of Jesus could have ever dreamt up. It's not something that we today, as a bunch of ragtag followers, can plan and can scheme and can make happen. Help us, Lord, to be desperately dependent upon you upon your power, upon your kingdom, as we're looking and seeking to bring you glory. God, encourage us, remind us of our place in this story, equip us, send us out from here to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.